Hi, good evening, everybody. I'm Stacy Hosty. I'm the general manager for WNIJ and Classical WNIU. Thank you all for being here. Um, we're not necessarily surprised by the size of the crowd, um, knowing that this is a topic that has affected many of us and our community. We have a great panel, and as we get started, I'd like to introduce you to Randy Eccles. He's a fellow station manager for NPR Illinois in Springfield. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you, Randy. Thank you, Stacy, and, and thank you to WNIJ and WNIU. Um, we're really happy to be here tonight, and thank you all for showing up. It's important that you're here. That's the big part of this. Uh, we started this listening tour uh, almost six months ago when we realized the state budget hadn't been passed for almost a third year, and it was becoming more and more of a crisis we could see in the state capitol, because I'm based with the state capitol station. But a lot of people didn't seem to know how it was impacting them yet, and some people did. So we wanted to bring people together and let them share how the state's fiscal health was impacting them and things that they care about. So we've been going all throughout the state and doing this, and we're thrilled to be up here in DeKalb tonight and to work with WNIJ and WNIU to, to talk about this. So again, we'll have a great panel coming up, and we also want to thank our, our sponsors. Uh, AARP of Illinois has been nice enough to fund this tour, and uh, that's made this possible. Uh, just so you know, this is being recorded and it'll be available on our websites uh, probably in within 24 hours. And if you'd like to watch back and, and, and get some more context, you can do that. Uh, there are also several of the other listening sessions that we've done, forums across the state. So if you'd like to hear what some people had to say in other parts of the state where maybe you lived before, or uh, you have some interests, uh, that, that's doable too. Um, but right now, I'd like to introduce uh, Terry Warman. Terry is the Associate State Director for Advocacy and Outreach at AARP. So, Terry, thank you. Whoa, and thank you, Randy. Uh, good evening. As Randy said, my name is Terry Warman, Associate State Director for Advocacy and Outreach for AARP. Illinois and on behalf of AARP Illinois and our director of advocacy and outreach Ruby Houghton Pitt we would like to welcome you to um, this event we have been sponsoring these events this event and ten others like it uh, across the state and we've heard from individuals just like you in Springfield Champaign-Urbana in Chicago and our final two um, Programs are actually going to be in Carbondale and Edwardsville, so if you know anyone down there, let them know. Um, AARP's goal is to be an advocate for the concerns of the 50 plus and their families. And one of the basic jobs for any state assembly is to pass a state budget. And for two years, Illinois was the only state in the nation that could not do their basic job. As a result, AARP launched the Enough is Enough campaign. We went out to the 1.7 million AARP members in Illinois and we asked them to contact their own elected officials and say, what are you going to do to fix this other than blame someone else? Um, because we need for you to take a leadership position to help us and the future we have here in Illinois as well as the hopes we have for our children and our grandchildren. Good news is the budget did pass, um, but now there's still a lot more to do. There are currently over $15 billion of backlogged unpaid bills the state owes 
to individuals and agencies who have already provided the services for their constituents and their clients on behalf of the state. They have a contract with the state to do this and they haven't been paid, many for over a year now. As a result, some have closed their doors and others have had to lay off staff. We've also heard um, that students are even questioning whether or not they want to go to college in Illinois or even live here in the future. So tonight, we want to hear your concerns as well. We hope you will listen to tonight's panelists as they share their experiences and what they are hearing and then share your questions and stories. Thank you again for coming tonight. And I'm going to turn this over to Sean Crawford, tonight's moderator. Sean. Thanks everybody for coming out tonight. And uh, I think as been mentioned, we know the state has a budget, but the state is far from being out of the woods when it comes to its finances. And that's having an impact. We know it's having an impact on you and we wanna hear about that. So we will be opening it up for questions in just a moment or two. If you've got a question, a comment, you can step up to one of the mics. First, we're gonna introduce our panel and hear a little bit from them. And uh, like I said, hopefully we hear from everybody tonight uh, in the audience. So let me uh, go ahead and get started here, and we'll start right next to me here. It's uh, Deanna Cata is with me. She is the director of the DeKalb County Community Mental Health Board, and it provides behavioral health care services to DeKalb County residents. And she's going to talk for a few moments. We'll keep going down the line and talk to the rest of our panel. Deanna? Hello. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here tonight talking to you, and, and I hope that uh, this is a dialogue. Um, I hear myself talk all the time, so I would really like to hear you talk tonight. I do want to clear something up. Um, the DeKalb County Community Mental Health Board is actually a funding agency, so we do not provide behavioral health care services, but we do fund the services for our partner agencies throughout DeKalb County. We have a budget of between $2.1 and $2.4 million that we grant out on an annual basis in the areas of mental health, <coughs> substance use disorder, and developmental disabilities. And we work closely with about, I think we're up to 22 partner agencies currently where we fund them to do those services. Um, some of you may have never heard of us, and that is both um, on accident and by design. Um, we walk a very unique line. We are funded by your taxpayer dollars. There is, uh, 50 years ago, uh, the taxpayers of DeKalb County passed a levy to have a portion of property tax go to fund those three specific areas. And so we have been doing that and funding those areas for 50 years. The reason you might not have heard about us is because why we're very proud of the work we do and we're very supportive of our partner agencies and the work. Uh, we don't want to have the state come and say, well, look at all these dollars you have available in DeKalb County. So we are not going to necessarily fund you at the same level because you have a local resource. The dollars that we have are to supplement state dollars and state contracts. They are not to supplant those dollars. And so we have been quietly doing our work because we do not want that to harm the community that we currently live in. The other thing I want to say is that you might not have heard of us because behavioral health care is both something people want to talk about and people don't want to talk about. We still are, are in an era where 
uh, it comes up in certain areas where behavioral health care is such a high priority and people want to talk about it and work with it. And then it's also something that people don't want to talk about, don't want to acknowledge, and still has a lot of stigma around it. And so I'm hoping tonight that um, I can share with you some of what I'm hearing of what's going on because of the state budget impasse. Our agencies are still impacted, as Sean and others alluded to, even though there's a budget, Agencies that were getting paid during the budget impasse because they were under mandate to do so are now not getting their checks because they're at the end of the line. I met with agencies this morning and a lot of them are suffering with cash flow because the checks that they had counted on are now not coming in. So the story isn't over uh, and there's still been quite a few impacts that are, we're gonna feel in this community for a while. So thank you. Thanks, Deanna. And as we move down the line here, we have Matt Streb. And Matt is the chief of staff, and uh, he's chief of staff to the president of Northern Illinois University. And he's also a former professor in the NIU political science departments. Matt? Thank you, Sean, and, and thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure to be on the panel. And I, I have to say it's very interesting uh, to hear Sean Crawford's voice coming out of this man's body. Um, <laughs> so I hear Sean all the time on the radio. It's, it's nice to meet him in person. Yeah, I, I'm here representing NIU, and, and I think that uh, there's no doubt that higher education uh, was negatively affected by what's happened in Illinois uh, with the budget. Uh, and I, I, we'll talk about you know the budget climate right now, but I, I would argue that this has been going on for quite some time. You know, at NIU, the budget situation made it very difficult for us to recruit and retain uh, our faculty and our staff. Um, it had a horrible effect on morale um, for a variety of reasons. It made it very difficult for us to, to recruit students. Our enrollment was down. I want to be very clear that the, the state wasn't the sole reason why our enrollment has declined. Um, but it made it very difficult for us to convince students to stay in state. Um, the, it was really interesting the week that the budget passed. You know, if you look at kind of our enrollment, and we obviously track that you know, uh, on a daily basis, you look, previous years enrollment looked pretty much the same, it had the same kind of uh, tracking. The week after the budget passed, we saw an enormous spike of new and transfer students who committed to NIU. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that there was uncertainty about the budget. A lot of that had to do with the fact that there was uncertainty about MAP grants. Um, and so, you know, enrollment has had an effect uh, because of what has happened uh, in, in the state. You know, we are super thankful that we have the budget that we have. It wasn't a perfect budget by any means. We still took a 10% cut. That's about $10 million of our, of our budget. Certainly, it's much better than the alternative, but we still have a lot of issues that we need to work through. Uh, we have tens of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance on campus. Uh, we have IT that is in desperate need of refresh. Uh, we have faculty and staff who work so hard on behalf of the university and who have given our students such an incredible educational experience that have gone years without raises and who are paid well under market. Uh, and we have to protect our cash position. Uh, I'm sure this is something that we'll talk about right now, but there's a very, or tonight I should say, but there's a very real possibility that come May or June of this year, we will be right back to where we were uh, in previous years, and that is without a budget. And so all those things, I think, are, are things that, that, that we're concerned about. I will say, though, that we've had challenges, um, but I'm very, very proud of the way our faculty and staff have worked on behalf of the university under conditions that haven't always been the, the best. Um, we are still giving our students great experiences. And just this summer, we were recognized by the Brookings Institute. And I think this is very, very important because the Brookings Institute looked at several hundred public universities. 
Uh, and they graded you on two measures, uh, how much social mobility you provided for your students and the quality of your research. Uh, and if you were rated highly on both of those measures, you were considered a leader. Uh, NIU was a leader, uh, and we were one of only two universities in the state of Illinois that received that recognition. The other was the University of Illinois system. For those of you who don't know NIU, that is who we are. That is what our mission is. And so even though we've had some definite challenges with the state, I'm still very, very proud of the, the, the job that our, our, our faculty, staff, and students are doing. So I'm looking forward to talking more about the effects that, that this has had in higher education as we go forward tonight. Uh, but thanks so much for, for being here. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Thanks, Matt. Next up, we have Christina Garcia. She's the Executive Director of Comunidad, Conexion Comunidad. I hope I got that right. And also, that is a DeKalb County-based nonprofit that encourages education, health, community awareness, and leadership developments. Christina. Good evening. Thank you for having us. It is a pleasure being here. Um, my role at Conexion Comunidad as executive director is a volunteer role. Um, that has always been a volunteer role. We're not, um, we don't get any funding through the state. However, we do partner with other organizations, or we did partner with other organizations that do get some state funding. Um, unfortunately, with the, with this um, uh, budget um, that we have or don't have, um, uh, we've lost some partners. Um, some of our partners were very instrumental in allowing us to maintain a facility that helped us uh, provide additional programs in other areas such as you know, our cultural awareness and community awareness programs, uh, leadership development programs. Um, one uh, particular relationship that we had was with Kish College. They were one of our building uh, users. They had um, adult education classes on site for uh, people that were within walking distance. Um, it was one of their highest um, attended uh, uh, facilities that they would uh, host these classes. It would be uh, ESL, GED, and of course they had family literacy programs. So since the budget cut, they're no longer in our facility, which really brings a lot of the traffic down in our building. And of course, um, the people that came were people that we reached out to for these additional programs. Um, so that's one of our biggest uh, areas that we were that we're suffering right now is is the lack in partners that have you know, lost a lot of the, the funding that they, or support that they've gotten through the state. Um, another area that we're trying to develop some more um, partnering with is, of course, within the school districts. Um, uh, in the school district here in DeKalb County, uh, DeKalb particularly has um, what's called a Bilingual Parents Advisory Committee that does get some funding through the state. Um, that also has been cut. and. Um, you know, a lot of that area of, of the, the funds that were cut really was focusing on the educators' uh, development and training. Um, so their, their resources are a little bit less now, so they are, they're focused on the programs that they are required to, um, to cover. They're not able to, 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 um, to I guess, um, cover all those areas. So they just focus on the ones that they feel are the most important. Um, which kind of forces us, I think, uh, with Conexión Comunidad, with our other programs, since we've lost some of these um, relationships, it really focus, it really forces a lot of other organizations to look for more fundraising. So a lot of times you're going to see more fundraising a lot. Um, I think we went from having an annual fundraiser now to um, three 
uh, three fundraisers a year now that we're working on. So to be able to, to make up for the loss in our partners. So that's where we find ourselves today. Thank you. Also next up we have Jeremy Groves. Jeremy is an associate professor and director of graduate studies at NIU. He specializes in public finance and urban and regional economics. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, like you said, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Economics, so uh, I'm not here to uh, double down on NIU. Uh, I'll let uh, Matt take care of the institutional side of things. Uh, I'm more here as kind of the economic side of things. Uh, so I do teach uh, public sector economics. That's my area of specialization. Uh, and more specifically, I do research on housing markets. And I'm a little worried to say this because they did provide food, uh, property taxes. Uh, <laughs> So we can talk about that later on. Um, but I'm here more to talk about the kind of the larger economic impact um, that this budget issue uh, has had. Uh, we've actually been talking about this issue for several years. Uh, it, it's been in the news quite a bit, even before the, the impasses started, that Illinois was not bringing in enough money. How do we solve that problem? Uh, do we raise taxes? Do we not raise taxes? What do we do? And I think the biggest issue that people uh, really need to understand is there's an element of uh, reputation and expectations that really play a role here. And right now, Illinois is not doing so hot on those issues, right? Uh, if you think about it, I looked at the numbers before I came in today, um, 30, at least 30% of the employees in the state of Illinois have some relationship to the budget. Now that's not state employees, okay? Only 5% of uh, all employees in the state actually work for the state, okay? These are people who work in education, healthcare, social services, right? So this is a large hunk of the economy. If those people aren't getting paid, as we've kind of already seen by some of our dis uh, people who have discussed today, they're not going to stick around. And it's going to be hard to attract quality people to fill those roles if there's a question as to whether or not they're going to get paid. Now what about the other 70%? Well the other 70% of the workforce is made up of what? Retail, manufacturing, uh, just typical jobs, right? Well you've got to have a firm willing to hire people. Now if you're a firm and you're looking at where do I locate, you're going to look at two things. You're going to look for stability and you're gonna look for a workforce, right? And the stability side of things, do you have the infrastructure? Do you have the highways? Do you have um, uh, the water, the, the things that we need to make what we make and to get it out to the world? <laughs> Illinois has some advantages with that. We have a great rail system here. Uh, I actually live in Rochelle, so we have the intermodal there. Uh, it's a great position for this. Uh, but the other thing that we have in Rochelle is we have a bridge over Interstate 39 that has been closed for six months and will continue to be closed because there was a wreck several months ago which damaged the bridge and they haven't even gotten around to testing it yet to see if it's safe to travel across. That's an infrastructure problem, right? And if you don't have the infrastructure, then a firm's not going to locate because where am I how am I going to get my stuff out to sell it? The other thing a firm needs is a workforce. And you say, okay, workforce, people, what are they looking for? Well, a workforce is looking for probably two things, housing and education a lot of the times. Illinois 
at the state level is the lowest in terms of the state share of education that's funded. Every other state sends more money to education from the state than we do in Illinois. Roughly 26% on paper. You go talk to superintendents, they're gonna tell you that yeah, 26%, we would be thrilled with 26% compared to what they actually get. I'm guessing there's a superintendent or someone on the school board right there. Uh, this is a problem because, and then when you're not passing budgets, they're not even getting that amount. And so again, how are you gonna recruit good teachers? How are you gonna get people to bring their kids here? And so when we think about this budget, a lot of times it's easy to focus on the direct, well, okay, the state can't hire employees or the state can't do this. There's a lot of uh, cascading effects that come from a lack of budgets because of just the uncertainty. Firms don't like uncertainty. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things we've really got to pay attention to that. And given that we've already had the issue that we had, given that it's not looking good for the next budget, that's a lot of uncertainty uh, facing the state. And, you know, places like Amazon, who are looking for a second world headquarters, they're going to think twice. Thanks, Jeremy. And... Uh... That didn't put us on the best uh, positive note, did it, when we talk about that? Um, before well, we... there's, a reason, there's a reason they call economics the dismal science, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, we will, uh, before we get to our last panelist, I did want to mention if you have a question or a comment, uh, anything you'd like to add, just feel free to go ahead and start stepping up to the microphone, so we will be opening this up in just a moment uh, for the questions and comments. Sure. Well, let me, let me, before we do that, let's get to our final panelist. I'm sorry. Um, at the far end down here is Mary Ellen Shade. She's executive director of Safe Passage, and that's a domestic violence agency and rape crisis center serving DeKalb County. Thank you, Sean. Um, good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all. I'm glad there's so much interest in this important issue. Um, I've been the executive director of Safe Passage for three years, and the last two years we had no budget, and we at Safe Passage, um, state funding kind of stopped. Fortunately, we, in addition to state funding, we also get some federal funding, and so um, the first year we managed with some of the federal funding and we have a couple um, very generous foundations in the county that stepped up and said we're going to help you out. They understand that we are the only domestic violence agency and the only rape crisis agency in DeKalb County and in fact our 27 bed shelter is part of what I always say part of the first responder system because if um, a police officer goes into a situation where there's a, women, a woman and, and children, um, the woman's been strangled, um, horrific situations that we don't want to believe happen in DeKalb County, but unfortunately they do, they have to have a place to go. And so they can, on the basis of an emergency, come to safe passage. 
Um, in addition to the shelter, we offer a 24-7 crisis line so people can call us. We provide legal advocacy to victims. We provide medical advocacy. We go out to the hospitals and, and help victims traverse um, that difficult situation. We also help them go through court and obtain orders of protection or go through court proceedings, which is also a confusing and intimidating process. We also do a tremendous amount of prevention education in the schools, and we run a program for offenders to try to help them learn new behaviors. So we do a lot of important things in DeKalb County, and I don't know if any of you noticed at the First United Congregational Church on First here in DeKalb, um, we put out all the flags of all the people, women, children, and men, because we do have male victims, who have come to our, for our services in DeKalb County, to Safe Passage since the beginning of this year. So it's a huge problem, and the fact that there wasn't a budget for two years, sometimes I um, think, like, I'm not really sure how we survived. We survived, but there was a lot of damage done. We, many of the social service agencies in um, the state of Illinois, many of our colleagues in other areas of the state ended up closing shelters and ended up laying staff off. We didn't have to lay any staff off, but what happened was that we had a huge amount of turnover because people it was a very, very stressful time, and, and there was a lot of unknowns, so people were, un, they were nervous, and they left. So some people, when they left, we didn't replace them we, because we were trying to save money, and that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about Safe Passage is that we operate on such a very um, lean line that we don't have, when people say, you know, cut, cut. There's nothing to cut. We only have basically staff and buildings. And um, so we didn't fill some of the positions. Basically, those were the management positions, because if we didn't fill the direct service, people who work directly with clients, then I'm, I'm going to say we didn't get paid. But what it was is we wouldn't have gotten paid if the, whenever the payment came, if we didn't have those people working. So nonprofit finance is a very um, crazy and surreal kind of world. I'm sure <laughs> um, my finance director would tell you that, and I tell you that. Um, but with the help of foundations, with a lot of damage done by loss of staff and um, you know, the, the uh, state did pass a stopgap budget about 18 months before the end of the last fiscal year. And for some reason, nobody knows why, domestic violence services were left out of that stopgap budget completely. So I was spending time with my board um, doing scenario planning. And again, because of such a lean operation, it's like, what do you cut? What program do you shut down? Um, but. Fortunately, we didn't have to go that far because they did pass a budget. And I think, um, so I think the, the comptroller of the state is very um, sympathetic to vulnerable people in the state and feels like those people need to be 
paid, the providers of service to those people need to be paid. So domestic violence, which was left out of the stopgap budget, we did receive some payment. I will say though that there is um, cascading um, damage because now we um, have a harder time finding people when we're looking for people. Um, people are more reluctant to come work for us because they don't feel secure that it's going to be safe to, um, because we don't know what's going to happen. I think that's what another big thing about the state budget impasse, and I know the state budget has been a mess for many, many years. And, um, but this, these last two years were pretty shocking to people in my world. And um, the trust is, it's hard to trust that it will be there. Even though it's there now, it's hard to trust that it'll be there again. So um, again, thank you for being here and for allowing me to be here. Thanks, Mary Ellen. And again, this is a two-way conversation tonight, so we do want to hear from you as well. Um, anybody that would like to speak, we'd ask you to step to a microphone. Um, and we want to be able to hear you. We want everybody in the back to be able to hear you as well. You can make a comment. You can make a question. You can direct it to our panel if you'd like. Uh, we just ask that you respect each other. We're not here to make campaign speeches. We're here to talk about the state budget and the state finances. So if you have a question, uh, feel free to step up to one of the mics if you could. Go next. After. Good evening. I'm Jerry Smith. I'm the mayor of the city of DeKalb. I've been in this community as an NIU student, an NIU grad for 56 years. I have been very fortunate to learn a lot about this community. I think it was because of that that I was very successful in April and I've been now just short of five months as your mayor. Northern Illinois University is the largest single economic driver in this community. And the drop in enrollment, and there are a number of reasons as Matt alluded to, but, I be, but believe me, the drop in enrollment at Northern Illinois University has had a tremendous impact on the city of DeKalb. Whether that be lack of bodies to, uh, to fill, uh, restaurants, to buy gas, whatever, a number of things. And we have a number of other issues also, not all tied into NIU. Very quickly, the city of DeKalb has been a partner with NIU for years. But we've heard that students across this state have been lured by other communities, other states, who perhaps even offer in-state tuition because they know of the problems that Northern has. Uh, as a municipal uh, body, the city of DeKalb, the state continues to chip away at things. There is something called a local government distribution fund. We're going to see at least 2% less this year because of that. I read something today where they're looking at another program where they give back to the, community, the, to the communities that serve our populations across the state, Sean, and that's gonna be cut. So there are tremendous problems, but let me tell you there's tremendous promise also. Jeremy mentioned the fact of the promise that we have ge geographically in the state of Illinois. I've been informed that we were in the running 
with two communities in Illinois, Rochelle and DeKalb, for a large auto distribute or manufacturing facility. We're not going to get that facility. But out of 11 states that those companies were considering, the top three states were in the southeast. Surprise. The fourth state was Illinois. And you know, I've talked with the mayor of Rochelle. We worked so hard with the DeKalb County Economic Development Corporation and with Northern Illinois University extolling the virtues of what we have, not only in terms of workforce, but in terms of education. It meant a lot to those folks looking at the state of Illinois and specifically the communities of Rochelle and DeKalb when they were looking to, to locate here. So do we have problems? Absolutely. But do we have promise? Also we have that. And I'm just excited what we can do if we stick together and if we stick together in insisting on our legislators that they work as hard as we do in our communities to balance our budgets, to provide for our communities. If they do that, our sailing might be a little bit smoother. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. And uh, Matt, Jeremy, I know he mentioned both of your names, if you'd like to respond to that. Yeah, thanks for those comments, Mayor Smith. You know, just to give you uh, an example of what Mayor Smith's talking about. So the week that uh, the budget passed uh, in the state of Illinois, our provost was at a provostal conference uh, and ran into a provost from a uh, neighboring state um, who said to our provost, you just took away our recruiting strategy um, and was not joking. Um, Illinois rivals only New Jersey uh, for the state that exports the largest number of students. Um, and the problem with that is that once you leave the state, you're unlikely to come back. I grew up in New Jersey. My sister grew up in New Jersey. Neither of us went to school in New Jersey. Neither of us came back to New Jersey. Um, and so once people leave the state, it's a very good possibility they're not going to come back, and that's going to have a huge impact then on our economic development. It's going to have a huge impact on innovation. It's going to have a huge impact on the size of our workforce. Uh, it's a real serious, a serious issue. And so I am happy to say that Northern Illinois University uh, was one of the few public schools that had a rise in their incoming class this, this year. Uh, we were down in overall enrollment. That was not a surprise to us. I can tell you right now, we will be down in enrollment, overall enrollment again next year. Um, but we're very excited about the, the, the opportunity to build those classes back up uh, and again, you know, get our, our enrollment stabilized. So thank you for those comments. And I'd just like to add, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, location-wise, Illinois is in a great spot. Uh, we have several interstates that run through the state. Uh, we have a good rail system. We have several intermodal sites. Uh, you know, aside from having a port, you know, there's not much else we, we could want in terms of having the infrastructure to offer. But if that infrastructure is not maintained and there's too much uncertainty about workforce, businesses, we can make up infrastructure. You can't make up a bad workforce. You know, one other very quick point, too. When we lose population, we lose representation in Congress. Uh, when we went through the last census, we lost a congressional seat. It's very likely that come this next census, we will again lose another congressional seat. And that has influences on, on national policy and how the state is affected in all sorts of ways. I want to step up the mic. 
My name is Mike, and I'm not going to give you my last name because I work at NIU, and there are people there that if you speak out on anything, you will be retaliated against. So just wanted to let you know. It is a hostile work environment at NIU. And part of the reason is, is because there are people there that are using the state budget as a tool to trim staff and make changes that may not benefit the university. I'm a building service worker. I'm on the front lines. The running joke during the budget crisis was, we better start stocking up on Northern Stars because we're not going to be able to get any toilet paper. Two NIU employees meet each other on the street. How you doing? Fine. When are you going to retire? Not soon enough. When you retire, what are you going to do? Get the heck out of the state. It's, it's a hostile environment, just for, not just for NIU employees, but for all state employees. There are a lot of people out there who think we don't do anything, that we're just a bunch of lazy SOBs. I'm here to tell you folks, I've been there at 18 years, and I've seen some hardworking people, and all they want to do is retire, get what's promised to them from the state, and live a normal life. And even with a budget being passed, there is still uncertainty. SIRS is not being totally funded. You know, there are people there who cannot wait to get their 20 years, so they hope, they hope that the state will cover their insurance as was promised, you know, and it is getting to the point where everybody is carrying I don't care an I don't care stick and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and there are people there who are not afraid to swing it. We don't care what management does, we don't care what anybody does. We just want to go in, do our job and leave. And as a personal thing uh, about not being paid and stuff, I had a medical treatment back in June of uh, last year. I'm still getting a bill from the company, the insurance company, or the company that did it, for $4,600. I paid my $250. I paid my deductible. Luckily enough, they have been great. They have been kind enough that they've not sent me to collection. Because you know why? They red flagged me because I work for the state. You know, I'm afraid that someday I'm going to get a notice that says, uh, Mr. Craze, you owe $4,600. I've got that kind of money. There are people at that university that have not had a raise in seven or eight years. And the last time I checked, my expenses did not stay the same. So yes, there is a very serious morale problem as Mr. Strap talked about. It's not going to get any better. I don't care if we have a full budget. The damage has been done. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And uh, we'll, we'll move to that in just a second. I did want to mention when it comes to the health care issue, I'm based in Springfield, and uh, there are a lot of state employees down there. And many of the state employees now when it comes to insurance, uh, dentists, doctors, whoever, are requiring upfront payment. We have a person on our staff who 
just had to have dental work done, uh, $6,000 they had to come up with in advance. And uh, I think they're, what, two years behind now when it comes to reimbursement, maybe something like that. 2015, they're up to as far as the checks coming through. So a lot of out-of-pocket. That's a benefit, again, with no pay raises in many cases. That's a benefit that really isn't being fulfilled, at least at this moment. But uh, let me uh, let you respond to some of that. Yeah, sure. No, I think you know, our employees see it all the time. Uh, you walk into a doctor's office, you walk into a dentist's office, and you know, I, I, we have a lot of employees that, that simply can't pay up front. And it's something that, again, you work for the state, you expect the state to take care of you, and the state hasn't done a good job of taking care of, uh, of its, its workers. You know, I, I think Mike hit on a, a, something that I alluded to earlier. You know, the, the state budget, and I, and I will be the first to say, that NIU has some issues that have had nothing to do with the state budget. I want to be very, very clear about that. Um, we have things that we can change, that we can improve. We have inefficiencies at the institution. Any, any you know, organization our size, we have 18,000 students. We have several thousand employees. We're a small city. Any organization our size is going to have inefficiencies. If somebody tells you that you have an organization of that size that has no, it's completely efficient, they're, they're lying to you, right? We have things that, that we can change and we need to change and we are changing. Um, but Mike hits on, I think, a very important point, and that is that the morale is difficult right now, right? We, we are, uh, President Freeman has just proposed a small raise uh, across campus. Um, it's, frankly, it's not enough. We had to start somewhere. This is where we're going to start. But because of the constant angst about the state budget, it makes it very difficult to feel like, okay, yeah, things are, things are good. You know, I, you know, I tell the story all the time that when we had the budget passed uh, this past year, I walked into President Freeman's office. I gave her a high five. I walked back across the hall to my office, sat at my table, sat at my desk, and got heartburn because I started thinking about fiscal 19. Right? And so that's, that's a challenge, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and that uncertainty has been a, a major problem. In some ways, we got to a point where we are, we're fine. Give us a budget cut. Just tell us what it is. Give us a stable budget so we know how to plan going forward. And that's not something that we've had. We've had stop gas. We've had a whole bunch of things. Um, and frankly, it's not something that we have right now either. We have somebody else. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. My name is Steve Capitan, and um, as a Democrat, I don't, <clears throat> I don't want to take up my time complaining about the governor. God knows I have, would be able to spend some time doing that. I'd rather focus on solutions and a couple of things. Um, I served 12 years on the city council here in DeKalb um, and had the experience of dealing with um, uh, workers' compensation and had concerns that it needed reform. That was 10 years ago, so I don't know if there have been reforms since then. But one of the main issues that, that was uh, of concern in our decision-making was the overhang of health care. And that if we didn't just write a check to close off the claim that the fear of healthcare um, perpetually eating us alive on any particular claim uh, was ever present and forced a, a, uh, the, the city to make a decision too often of a lump sum just ended. 
And so is there a, is that a possible issue? I know the governor has raised that as something. I don't know if there have been reforms since I was on the city council. But universal health care, true universal health care, would help, would go a long way if we joined the rest of the world in doing that. It would go a long way toward eliminating that problem as well. Second, the second issue um, is uh, with regard to the budget and the potential um, lack of revenue. As everyone knows, we have a flat tax constitutional system. And everybody says, oh, well, this is so difficult to overcome. Well, the other thing that is ever present in people's minds in this state is the crushing high property taxes. And two-thirds of the property taxes go towards schools. If we established a quid pro quo by leadership in Springfield of both parties to advocate for a constitutional amendment to establish um, a progressive income tax with the expectation that there would be property tax relief associated with that. It might be possible. Your thoughts? Okay. <clears throat> so reform is definitely necessary. Uh, I, I will say I am uh, not well versed with workers' compensation specifically. Um, so I can't really comment so much to that. Um, the healthcare issue, we could discuss, we could spend all day discussing the, the, the merits of that, but the concern is very real. Um, healthcare costs continue to rise. Uh, it's hard to get control over those. And so if you are an institution faced with, okay, do we just cut our losses, pay out a claim, or do we risk having these healthcare costs, which are constantly increasing, keep creeping up, I mean, obviously you're gonna cut your costs and, and, and make your claim. Um, to the other issues, you're exactly right. Um, they're, constitutional design-wise, and, and Matt could probably speak to this as well, uh, Illinois is not one of, would not be a poster child for a good constitution. Uh, we have too many things that are written into it that shouldn't be there. Um, Personally, I agree that getting rid of a flat, the flat income tax, moving to a graduated system probably would be an improvement. If you look at most of the states around us, that's what you have. Um, you also, I, you, you brought up property taxes, and again, that, that's an area of concern. I pay four times as much here as I did in Missouri. Same, same type of house, same value of a house. Um, and like I said, it's because of how we fund things. Um, most other states, the average is around 75 to 80% of the funding for education comes from the state level. In Illinois, on paper, it's 26. So that's why your property taxes are so high. And in terms of proposed solutions, and I'm gonna deviate just a little bit here, um, be very cautious because one of the things that was being floated around is a property tax freeze. That sounds great on paper. But there's only one group that's going to suffer from that property tax freeze. That's the schools, right? Um, the state does not get any property tax money. The, so the state freezing property taxes is kind of like, 
you know, your boss coming to you and say, well, you know, I'm going to freeze your, your spouse's pay, <laughs> right? What, what difference does it make? No, 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 you're exactly right. It's not what you're suggesting. What you're suggesting is, yes, and I'm saying that's, yes, yes, okay. I will be clear, that's what was being proposed. Not a good idea. By the governor. Not a good idea. Um, you have to, though, be very careful um, in getting that agreement. Um, that will work if it's an agreement. Um, too often, what happens is kind of a bait and switch uh, to where governments will say, let us raise your sales tax, let us raise the income tax, and we'll give you property tax relief. And they say, okay, we'll raise the sales tax, and the property tax relief doesn't really ever come, right? Um, I'm not saying that means we should rule that out as an option. Uh, property taxes are definitely something that have to be put under control in the state. And probably uh, going to an income tax is going to be the best way to do that. Uh, other options include, um, I know I originally grew up in Indiana. Uh, in Indiana, counties and school districts have access to the property tax, uh, excuse me, have access to the income tax. So there's actually an income tax line that goes to the county, that goes to the school districts, right? Um, that could be an option because it takes it away from the property taxes. It's still community-based, but it takes it away from the property taxes. Um, but you're exactly right. There, there definitely needs to be changes, and a lot of those changes are going to have to come from the citizens getting fed up enough to say, hey, we need to change the way the Constitution's written in this state, and we need to make these changes. I think we had another uh, person I wanted to speak. Hi. Uh, most of you know me. My name is Paul Stoddard. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask each of you representing one of the agencies that, that's been affected, so Deanna, Matt, Christina, Mary Ellen, what would it take, what would you like to see the state do to make you whole or as whole as you can get? Then I'd like to bounce back to Jeremy and ask him, what does the state have to do to actually make that happen? <laughs> and then I'm going to ask Matt to dust off his poli sci hat and say, what are the chances that, that what, what Jeremy recommends could actually happen? <laughs> that almost sounds like a challenge yes. here, right? There you go. That, I'll take, take a, my answer off the air. That'll take the rest of the night or anything. So let's start with Deanna. Let her speak on this. Well, and I always appreciate Paul asking the easy questions. Um, that helps a lot. So I, I think I have a simple answer and then I have a really complex answer. And the simple answer is what do we need from the state? We need the state to honor the contracts. We need the state to pay what it said it would pay for the services that are out there. And Deanna, real quick, if you could explain that. I don't know that people always understand that the state has actually contracted with these agencies. So as Mary Ellen alluded to, and, and um, in full disclosure, the Mental Health Board does uh, fund Safe Passage. So um, I'm pretty familiar with the way uh, that their finances work as well as other nonprofit agencies. Nonprofit agencies that contract with the state, and not all nonprofit agencies do, but most of the human services one, especially around behavioral health care. The state issues a grant saying we need these services. Nonprofits, behavioral health care services, write and say, here, we can provide this service to you. And the state says, okay, we're gonna give you a contract, 
and we're either going to give you a grant, so uh, one twelfth of this amount we're going to give you each month, or we're going to have you pay a fee for service. You provide the service, we'll spend, a, you know, we'll we'll give you a fee for that, um, and we're going to have you sign this contract. We're going to promise you this money, but if that money isn't appropriated or isn't there, you're not going to get it. But we still need these services, and so we're still going to have you sign the contract, but we're not going to guarantee that you're going to get the payment for it. And so what happened during the budget impasse is that the contract existed. The state said, yes, we need you to do these services. The agencies agreed to do the services because that's the way nonprofit and behavioral health care works. And then the state didn't pay for those services. And if they did pay for them, they paid very late, they paid a lesser amount, or as I said, many of them are still waiting for those payments because they're waiting in line with the bills for all these other things that are really important and really needed in the state, but behavioral health care is a piece of that too. If these agencies said, we're not gonna take that contract, we don't like that deal, we don't wanna do services when you can't guarantee me funding, we wouldn't have those services. Um, and so, so what I would like the state to do is to say, you do this work and I will pay you for it. Seems like a simple concept, but that has been what the problem has been for the past couple of years and continues to be right now because these agencies are getting the payment. It's a very simple answer because I wish those payments covered all the needs that exist. And the truth is behavioral health care is very complex. Funding is very complex. And it doesn't cover the full cost of what the needs are that are out there. And um, I have so many ideas and, and, and comments swirling in my head, but to try to make this as concise as possible, is that agents, especially nonprofits, will do more with less and always have. There's been a history of, okay, you're gonna cut me and I will still continue to work that I, I do. But they cannot possibly offer the same quality with less money. They're gonna lose skilled workers, they're gonna cut programming, and then the public, what they see of that is they still see the problems that exist. You still see somebody walking on the corner uh, who's, who's homeless and you're thinking, well, why isn't somebody helping that person? You still hear of things happening in the news where people are being arrested because they are dis displaying behaviors that are inappropriate. And you think, well, why isn't somebody reaching out and doing something? Well, the truth is that there isn't funding to allow that to happen. And so, that the gets to be a really complex situation because we need funding for roads, we need funding for workforce development, and we need funding for behavioral health care. So how do we get in line? How do we have the state prioritize that uh, when there's so many other priorities? And that I wish I had the answer for that and I could just get up and leave and, and everybody could clap, but I don't. Um, and I think part of what we need to do is really have some honest conversations about that. I think a lot of people, and I don't mean anybody in this room because you're all here tonight, but a lot of people complain without offering any solution or willing to sit down and at least have the conversation. Or people are willing to blame and say, well, you're not doing your job without having that underlying conversation of, well, I can only do my job this much because this is all the funding will allow for. Let's uh, go on. Christina? Um. As Deanna mentioned, I, I can, um, 
you know, second that on, you know, honoring the contracts with our partners that we have in our organization. Um, as I mentioned, with Conexión Comunidad, we don't get any funding from the state. We sort of fill in or kind of complement the existing uh, organizations that already exist for the Spanish-speaking community or maybe just the marginalized community members. Um, but by doing that, or our existence is really, we're, we're providing that connection for community members that aren't aware of the resources that already exist. But how do I connect them to the organizations that were there but aren't there anymore? You know, um, how, how are we doing that? Um, I mentioned I'm a volunteer executive director. I have a full-time job, but I'm a volunteer director. I do it because somebody has to do it. There's nobody who's going to do it. And um, I know that uh, somebody had mentioned earlier, um, you know, why would somebody want to come work for an organization that isn't confident or sure of its future? Um, that's why I'm there. That's why I'm volunteering. Um, I've been teaching English classes. I've been teaching Spanish classes um, as, as a club um, voluntarily because I'm trying to fill the gap that is no longer at our community center. Um, we have many volunteers in the community who have come together and said, you know, how do we fill these gaps? Yes, these, these uh, resources still exist, but they're limited. So they're limited times that are no longer available to the people that were in the areas. Um, so by honoring these contracts with our partners, we're able to fill our building again and make um, people more aware of, of these these uh, organizations and resources that are still there, um, pointing people into directions that, well, they used to do this, but they don't anymore. Um, I can put you on a list, and when they offer this again, you know, we can get in contact with you. That's not fair, because are, is the momentum stops with people wanting to better themselves sometimes. I think they're like, oh, well, they don't offer that anymore, and sometimes they kind of lose that interest, and they might not come back. Um, many of our not-for-profits, um, here in DeKalb County that I've become very familiar with fill so many gaps that sometimes um, schools just can't provide. Um, some, of these, uh, some of these organizations have turned into larger um, uh, organizations that have benefited and eventually become um, uh, uh, supported by the state, which is great. Um, but I think that you know, by helping and honoring our, um, our contracts with these organizations and, and being able to continue to fulfill these needs that our community is needing, that's only gonna help um, improve people's uh, you know, uh, personal skills and, and, and be able to uh, help fill um, better positions here um, when we bring companies here by uh, ha having these positions filled by people within our community and not having to track so many people from outside. So. Um, that's kind of where I, what I would like to see is the same uh, as Deanna had mentioned is by honoring our partners contracts that would help us you know continue to uh, complement these existing resources and bring these resources back and Mary Ellen well I would like to see all those things too um, <laughs> I would like to see a time where we would um, really get paid what it costs us to provide the service in a way that the service is going to be effective and is going to have good outcomes. Because our goal in working with people who are abused and battered and um, just down on you know their luck completely with so many barriers is to help them overcome those barriers and become, get the education they need or they lacked, um, 
get some work skills, become contributing members of the community. We're not trying to say, we're gonna take care of you for the rest of your life, no. Um, we wanna help people get on their feet and get out there and support themselves and their children. So getting paid a reasonable amount for what it costs to provide a quality service would be completely wonderful. And I don't think that's been the case really for a long time with nonprofits. Um, and I would like to see a um, little bit of leeway because while they don't pay us, they still expect us to write the grants and do the reporting and keep the data and that costs money. You have to have people who do that. I'm not a volunteer executive director, but I sometimes work 65, 70 hours a week trying to meet all the regulations and meet all the requirements. So having, um, and I don't believe it's not out there. I know there's lots of reasons why the government, the state of Illinois doesn't have enough money and there's a lot of fault at, for that. There's a lot of things that um, I think just not the right choices have been made. And I think us as citizens have not been um, empowered enough. It's a complicated issue and it's hard to keep up and it's hard, and that's another thing I had to do during the budget crisis. I was calling legislators, I was writing letters, I was going to Springfield on top of everything else I had to do. So I'd like that to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to be able to provide a high quality of service to people and help them get on their feet and be contributing members of our community. And can I ask you what kind of response you got from the legislators? Oh, they just wring their hands and um, it's Mike Madigan's fault, it's Governor Rauner's fault, uh, we can't do anything. But then uh, Bob Pritchard came through. So I, um, I appreciate that. I think there was also a question thrown out to the two gentlemen as well, if you wanna respond. Yeah, Paul, to answer your first question, I, I'd like to see the state make a commitment to investing in public higher education again. Uh, public higher education in the state is no longer looked at as a public good, and that makes me very sad and upset. Um, we've talked about the budget crisis tonight. This has been an issue that's been facing higher education in the state for well over a decade. I was chair of political science for the Department of Political Science for five years. Every single year that I was chair of political science, I had to make a budget cut. Um, if you look at the amount of money that we get from our state, what our state appropriation is, less than 20% of our budget comes from the state today. Uh, if you go back about a decade ago, all right, and you look at our tuition and you look at our state appropriations, uh, a decade ago, two-thirds of that money came from the state, a third of that money came from tuition. Today, it's absolutely flipped. It's now a third of that money comes from the state, two-thirds comes from tuition. So I think that if, if, if I could have my way, I would ask that our state legislators make a commitment to funding public higher education. So it's my job to make this happen, right? Okay. That's right, yep, absolutely. All right. You know, this is something I thought a lot about. And, you know, I think the first step is, and the, everyone here has alluded to this already, and that's the loss of trust, right? Um, 
in the past, yes, the budgets have not been great. There's been issues with the budget, but there's been a budget. The last two years, there's been no budget. So the question then becomes, I mean, I know a faculty members just in NIU and uh, you know, that can tell the exact same story that, that you know, everyone up here is saying, high quality faculty members, I mean, superstar faculty members, they left. And when you ask them, well, why, we'll, we'll make up, we'll, we'll match an offer, it has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with expectations. I don't know that I'm gonna have a job next year. Why do I want to sit and live in that unexpected environment? And so I think the first thing the state has got to do is got to regain that trust. I, I think Matt kind of hit on the idea when he mentioned that, you know, when the budget was passed, he, he gave the president a high five and then got heartburn. Pass the multi-year budget. Make a commitment coming out the door that at least for two, three years, there's going to be a budget. We have issues we're gonna to have to deal with. Those budgets may not be balanced, but there's a budget. People are gonna get paid, right? Once you've gained the trust, or at least started acting like you're gaining the trust, then you have to start making some really hard reforms. I think one of the things that we can do, though, is a change in vocabulary. Um, you, you hear about the services uh, that these agencies are providing you hear about higher education, when you refer to it, when you hear it referred to in budget talk, it's spending. It's not spending, it's investment. Because if you're not investing in crisis, if you're not investing in English as a second language, if you're not investing in higher education, if you're not investing in healthcare, nothing else is going to happen. These people are just gonna be continually servicing the same people over and over again. It's not spending. It's very easy to say, I'm going to cut spending. It's less easy to say, we're gonna cut investment, right? And the other aspect, I think uh, the gentleman, Mike, who was speaking, uh, I, I can kind of feel your pain. Um, I've been at the university for 12 years. This was my first job out of graduate school. Uh, I never received a raise. Um, we have new faculty members who get paid more than I do just because of the way the market works. Um, so we're all faculty and I mean, the people, the service people who make NIU work, I mean, I can't imagine what they go through at home. It's tough, it, I'm sure it is. I can imagine that and what that happens again, that's where the investment is because frankly, it's wearing people out, right? So you have to look at this as an investment. Okay, real reforms. Illinois is number one in the country, yay, <clears throat> for having the most units of government. <laughs> we have close to 7,000 different units of government in this state. There has to be consolidation. Now, it's a hard choice. One of the biggest areas where you see this spread out is at the school districts. There are school districts that serve one school. Uh, I come from Rochelle. We have an elementary school district, which serves several schools, and then we have a high school district, which is separate, that serves a high school, right? That's not efficient. From the economist perspective, there's, there's economies of scale, right? And what that basically means is you can save money by consolidating, right? So there has to be consolidation. Uh, township levels, uh, there, there's got to be consolidation. Uh, changes in the tax code, we've talked about already. 
Um, we, we've got to look at how we tax it. Uh, Illinois is the only state in the area that does not tax any retirement, right? Illinois, I mean, sorry, Indiana, Iowa, and Wisconsin all tax retirement. They don't tax Social Security, but they tax retirement, right? So what I mean by that is in the state of Illinois, if you receive any retirement funds, whether that's from a 401k, whether that's from university retirement, uh, a pension from your job, social security, any retirement income, you do not pay taxes, period. Uh, most of the states around us, you'll pay, uh, social security is usually exempt, uh, but things like your 401k income, There'll be a deduction, like most income taxes, but you'll have to pay some income tax on it. Uh, one article I read uh, uh, estimated it to be about $2.2 billion a year that the state of Illinois is losing out on. And Jeremy, if I can interrupt you yeah, on sure. that. That what is what some people say is one of the few bright spots of Illinois and one of the reasons people may actually stay here. Well, but see, my response to that... I'm impressed he's making that argument at an at a, a event sponsored by AARP. We're not, taking, <laughs> we're not taking a poll on this I, I'm an economist, not a political scientist. I don't think like that, right? <laughs> I did see a lot of frowns when I mentioned that, so I don't know. It would be... If there was another reason to be here, but frankly, there are a lot better states that don't tax income at all. Uh, I think there's a couple out on the West Coast that might be nice to live in. Uh, yes, that is a bright spot, but you know, as Mike alluded to earlier in his comment, you know, they want to get their retirement and leave because we also have really high property taxes here. And that's another thing that hits uh, the older retirement population, typically with fixed incomes, the hardest is property taxes, right? Um, we need to change education and the way it's funded. That's going to relieve property tax issues. And just to top it off, since we're going to be uh, having a wish list here, uh, pension reform. Uh, but, you know, I'll let Matt explain to you how that's going to happen. <laughs> I'll right. let him off the hook here uh, real quick. <laughs> I guess I would, I would sum that up very quickly. The, the first chair, my first chair, the person who hired me in my first job once referred to me is an impatient optimist. Uh, I'm still impatient. I wish I was more of an optimist. Uh, I am very, very skeptical that significant reform is going to come. And if you look at the budget um, that passed, and again, NIU benefited from that budget, even though we took a 10% cut, uh, that budget was just simply kicking the can down the road. It was not fixing the structural problems of the budget. There are many, many issues that we still have to address. And so I am somewhat skeptical that, that true meaningful reform will come, especially in the next year with such an important uh, governor, governor's race. Let's uh, go back to the microphone here. We have several people still wanting to make some questions or comments. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Andre Williams. I'm the, um, running for precinct committee person for the 16th precinct here. And I'm also uh, the brother to uh, the chief of police here in DeKalb, Gene Larry. You can't tell the resemblance, but I'm going to go. And speaking of that, I spoke to him this morning, and they were just approved uh, funding from the um, Justice Department to handle things with uh, mental health issues as far as with, um, within the, the jail structure and with a lot of other things. Now, um, you might ask, you know, how does that help with the budget? Well, 
they already have a plan to do something with the budget. The school board, they messing their budget up by funding things that they shouldn't be funding. They want a fund to have an investigator come and follow minority children home from school to make sure they live in the school district. Um, when you talk about um, that, and I wanted to ask you, um, is it Jerry? Jeremy. Jeremy. Um, do you think it's important that when a budget is reached, that the funds that, that are spent on the, the, the things that the funds are used for are actually blueprinted and, 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 and th thought about in the long run as opposed to just immediate uh, relief? In an ideal world, yes. Um, and, and that's not, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm discounting your opinion, your idea there. Um, I, I have, I, I've honestly had some experience with doing budgets, not at the state level, but budgeting is hard to do, okay? Um, it would be nice if the structure of the system was such that we could go through the budget and say, okay, this is a good idea, this is a good idea. Yeah, this is not so much a good idea. Um, I would say in short that that's where uh, citizen participation comes in. Uh, it's hard to do from an administrative level, but from a citizen's perspective, um, pay attention to what your school board is, is spending money on. Pay attention to what your local community uh, is spending money on, and if you don't like it, say something, right? Um, Sometimes it will work, sometimes it won't. Unfortunately, that's the way the system, the system is set up. Uh, but in terms of from a top-down approach, I, I don't see that ever happening. It's really gotta come from a bottom-up approach. Okay, and one last thing to, um, um, what's your name, ma'am? Christina. 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 Mm -hmm. um, there, um, at a lot of places, when they don't construct the budget from the beginning to think about the long run, as Jeremy was just speaking, when they think about it from their perspective instead of the citizen's perspective, you will be in positions like that. And I thank you for you being in that position. And I wish you the best. Thank you. Thanks. Go ahead if you'd like. You wanna to respond to that? Um, you know, I, I feel that um, my participation in the not-for-profit um, part of this community has, you know, you know, I'm employed. I, I have, um, you know, kids that don't necessarily depend on some of the organizations, but working with my clients that do depend on these organizations makes it very um, important for me to to not just meet the needs of their, you know, um, financial needs, but their overall needs as community members, um, which is why I do participate. Oftentimes, you know, um, I get, you know, why do you do this? You know, why do you do that? You know, why why wouldn't I do it? You know, this this is the community I live in, and I know that if I'm helping one other person become a better person or buy a home in in a neighborhood that's going to be a better neighborhood because that person is living there, you know, why wouldn't I want to do this? Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that um, somebody, there, there's not many people that would do it voluntarily. Um, and and as, as has been mentioned already tonight is that 
what's what's missing is is the quality of what we're providing our community members and that's where the funding comes in um, because we can't always rely on volunteers to do this because we also want to be able to provide quality services to community members so um, you know as much as I, I I do want to do it and enjoy doing it I also do think that community members deserve that quality um, uh, piece of it as well and that comes through funding and I want to piggyback on that just a little bit because I think uh, I think that's a really important part of of the nonprofit culture, the nonprofit um, philosophy, is people do nonprofit work because they love it, because they are passionate, and uh, having a volunteer executive director is incredible. But if next week Christina wants to leave, that might be it, unless somebody else comes in and wants to volunteer to do that job, that leaves with her passion. And I think we need to remember to invest that, that people who work in the nonprofit field uh, live in this community and purchase in this community and pay taxes in this community. And so valuing them and the work that they put forth is pretty critical to do. Uh, with that being said, I, I want to thank Mr. Williams for bringing up the fact that I, I did get to work with Jean Lowry in the city of DeKalb and the police department on bringing in a strategic planning grant from the Bureau of Justice to look at how do we have better collaborations between mental health and law enforcement. We work our rear ends off to bring in funding from everywhere we can so that we're not relying strictly on your tax dollars, strictly on your donations, strictly on the state, strictly on the level of local funding. We look for places under rocks, behind mountains, in the bottom of the ocean, to find funding so that we can provide the services that are needed in the community. And I, I think that um, that was just a really great example of the, the work that people do to make sure that the services that they're passionate about remain in this community. And people aren't sitting back and saying, yeah, just let the money roll in and you know, we'll, we'll take care of, of one or two folks. People are working really hard to make sure that those services are available. And, uh, and I commend Christina. She's been doing this, she's being modest, for a long time. She's been the volunteer executive director. <laughs> Christina can't leave is what I understood. No, <laughs> nobody, nobody's left to take over. Uh, we do want to hear from as many people as would like to speak here, so we're going to try to move rather quickly here the next several minutes, but uh, go right ahead. I'll be brief. My name is Christian Koppel. Uh, I went to uh, college in another state, and I came back here after living here all my life, so I'm one of the few that actually comes back. <laughs> so uh, take it with a grain of salt. But uh, Illinois has this interesting policy of changing its constitution to require certain things be paid or be provided. I mean, the Illinois Constitution, as you guys touched on, says a lot of things. For example, it says, the state shall provide for an effect efficient system of high quality public educational institutions and services. Now, who agrees that they're doing that? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's something that is completely vague. And um, right now, we just passed, well sorry, recently we passed a uh, constitutional amendment that locked in transportation funds. Now, in the short term, it's a pretty good idea, but what happens when we have to adapt to change as a state and actually encounter problems that we haven't dealt with before? Much like in the 1970 congressional, uh, when, they made the new when they made the new constitution in 1970, they locked in teachers' pensions and contracts with the state. We just touched on that they're not paying contracts with um, 
501c3s or public non-for-profits. And they're also not really, I mean, the pensions are up in the air right now. What happens if they stop this policy of changing the Constitution every time they want to protect something so it snowballs into a larger problem later? What happens if they open up those avenues and allow them to renegotiate or look at the bigger picture on things and where these ideas fit? So you're saying maybe another constitutional convention, something Potentially, to Potentially, yes. Okay. Um, anybody want to give a quick response to that? I know what the union feels about that, but... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, union reps. Sorry, I'll let that. Matt take that one. Okay. You know, I, I think you raise a good, uh, an interesting point. I mean, I, one of the things you have to be careful about is that, you know, direct democracy can be good, uh, and it can also have unintended consequences. I, I used to live in California where we had something called Proposition 13. Uh, and it sounded great, right? It, it locked your property taxes uh, in unless you, you moved and then the property was reassessed and the new person moved in and uh, they paid whatever the new assessment was. Um, my next door neighbor paid four times less than what I paid in property taxes when I lived in California. So there are a lot of things, and, and the, you know, you, you get that locked in and it's very difficult to actually get people then to, to, to take a step back from that. So I, I you know, I, I am somewhat skeptical of, of locking in, uh, you know, I, I'm skeptical of states that say you can't raise taxes unless a certain percentage of the public says you can, those types of things I think is, is, is somewhat problematic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to just make a real quick comment and then a question. Uh, it seems that these agencies that are present here are extension very often of law enforcement or uh, deferring problems that would end up in law enforcement. And it's so obvious when everyone talks about our budget, oh, we always fund law enforcement, but you guys are, you know, I see as sort of the pre-law enforcement agencies keeping people out of that system. So would be education, I suppose. Uh, my question is a difficult one, and it's a question that we can all think about. There seems to be method to this madness. It's like a game of chicken, and your agencies, the university, are starved and then starved again. We have one more starvation we're looking forward to. Uh, is it possible that we have a political force here that does not believe that any of you should be funded, that we should return back to private education where only the wealthy go to school, where we don't educate people that don't speak the language, and we don't help people who have been raped. So we really have to ask ourselves that, and I know it's a difficult question, and I wouldn't, would respect you if you don't want to answer it, but from my perspective, it seems like we have a political entity that does not believe in any of the things that are going on in this panel? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely true that there is no consensus in our society and in our community that the people that we help deserve it. Um, you know, they shouldn't have had that many kids. They should have left. Um, they shouldn't have been out walking in the dark. You know. It, that's my particular world, but it's the same with all poor people and all mentally ill people, many of who are in our organization. And um, 
it's a hard thing to persuade, but I, how, I was thinking about this today, too, because, and I, I want to just tell a brief story. I got called into a crisis at our shelter this afternoon, and there's a woman there who is taking, I think, about 18 different medications. And she's, um, and so there's a question about who would prescribe 18 different medications to someone. Um, but she went to get in, she wanted to drive, she went to get in her car, and, you know, we said she can't. At the same time, she has free will. It's a real challenge. But if I let her get in the car and drive, that's, she's at risk of being hurt, and so is your child who's out on the street, or, so it's really important that we respond to these people because they are, um, it does impact our lives in ways that we really just don't have any idea. But that is a big challenge, I think, for all social services, for mental health providers, for people that are working with the Hispanic community and the immigrants and the hostility mm -hmm. there is in our you know, country now about that. Um, it's really, really a challenge, but it's important anybody to, else want to give, keep fighting the fight. Anybody else want to give a quick response to that? I could. I, I, I think that we all walk down one path and there we can easily be distracted by what we mentioned as like political forest. But if you don't see that, you can keep walking, keep moving forward, and don't let that distract you. That's what I believe, whether it be there or not. Just really quick, when I was prepping for this last night and, and just kind of going through in my mind what I wanted to share, uh, I wrote down a quote from former Vice President Joe Biden. Don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. And I think that uh, sums up what you just said. Let's go back to the uh, crowd here. That's beautiful, Dan, because it ties into what I want to say. My name is Jack Reich. I'm a 30-year resident of DeKalb. Uh, the uh, retired politician formerly known as Jonathan. And uh, I really have three things that I want to contribute, and I'll, I'll try to be, as Bob Reich always said, I'll try to be short. Um, somebody got it. Thank you. Uh, it was Winston Churchill who said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. The problem, one of the problems is that I think we need a meta-analysis of what's going on. In other words, we need to look at the overarching phenomena that embrace all of what we're talking about. I, I think of you folks, and I, the metaphor came to me, of you as fish, a representative of the whales, a representative of the, of the Gulf shrimp, a representative <laughs> of the salmon, a representative of the coral reef fish, and you're here talking about how can we solve the problem of the coral reef? How can we solve the problem of the disappearing whales and so on? Well, the problem is ocean acidification and global warming, and none of you can solve that problem. That's the situation I think we're in, and I'll explain what I mean. We're not going to solve our problems until we restore the democracy which the founders had in mind for this country. Was it Jefferson who said, that the success, or Tom Payne, I forget, of a, of a democracy depends upon the participation of an educated citizenry. I submit to you, we lack an educated citizenry. And we don't talk to one another. We have so few 
conversations like this one. You're having, what, 11 or 12 of these around the state. That's it. And it has to be funded by somebody. Why don't we get together often in neighborhoods with our political representatives and talk about what our problems are? Democracy, it seems to me, is a form of government in which people who don't agree with one another talk to one another frequently. And we don't do that. Okay, the second point is this. Uh, our infrastructure is falling apart because we have become a nation with a third world infrastructure. And the reason is that our money is being misused. The voter, the average citizen, doesn't care that the federal government levies taxes, the state levies taxes, the locality levies taxes, and so on. The average citizen just cares that he or she feels like they're paying too much in taxes. Someone needs to explain to them that when, and this is where I'm, I'm piggybacking on what you said, Diana, that when the federal government presents a budget, when, when, when the Donald presents a budget in which discretionary spending, 50%, close to 50% of discretionary spending is for the military, I submit to you that as I said on the campaign trail, when Gene Sparrow asked me in 1992 to run against Danny Hastert, and not being a political scientist, I didn't need to worry about what my colleagues would think of me when I said these crazy things. And I went out and tried to convince people that the Pentagon is public enemy number one. Why? Because they spend 50% of our discretionary budget. And that means, do you remember what back in the days of Lyndon Johnson, the Democrats created uh, revenue sharing? And the gov federal government would give huge blocks of money to the states to use at their discretion. And this funded all kinds of wonderful programs. Why don't we have it anymore? Because we can't afford it. We're throwing all our money away on military junk. And it's using up your tax dollars to create no economically usable product that doesn't empl employ the number of people who would be employed if we spent it on, let's say, buses for a municipality. So uh, when, the, uh, when the civil engineers tell us that our bridges are falling apart, that, the, that something like 35 or 40% of our bridges get a, get a grade of F in the United States of America, when we have highways like I-35 in Minnesota that fall down. And remember that civil engineers matter because you know that God is a civil engineer. <laughs> yes, that's true. Who else but a civil engineer would run a, a, a waste disposal pipeline through a prime recreational area? So we have to listen when the experts tell us that our infrastructure is falling apart and the reason is that we're spending our money on the wrong things and we're not talking to one another about it and none of these problems are going to be solved until we until we solve those two problems. Thank you. Well, let's stay here with our microphones. We've got a couple of people. They've been standing for a while, so let's listen to them. Hi, uh, my name's Jean Evans, and I'm not going to get into um, any real um, broad discussion. Um, mine's kind of personal, uh, but it's also, it, you may relate to that um, in the sense that as Mayor Smith uh, uh, talked about NIU being the largest employer 
So that also means that it's probably the largest producer in our county of pensioners, <laughs> as people used to call retirees. And I'm a state retiree. And I'm, you know, personally, um, something that concerns me is when people say, well, you know, those people that retire from the state, they just have, have it so cushy because, you know, they, don't, they, they get a pension and we have to scrape and, you know, uh, scrape together our retirement funds. Um, but a lot of people don't realize, for example, my husband and I, have worked all our professional lives in the nonprofit sector. He in the social services, and I was in education or public libraries, either or. So we weren't making huge fortunes of money to set aside in an IRA or a 401k. And we wanted to continue to live in the community where we we're living, which was Sycamore, which does have, high, we feel, high property taxes. So again, we were struck with the battle of, you know, making our family's budget and somehow getting our four kids to, to college and all that kind of thing. Um, so I'm concerned. So a lot of what people have had to say has struck me as, being, as ringing true. Um, I do think that a, a graduated tax system would be fairer in the state. Um, although, I'm concerned that if we completely open up our Constitution and do have a Constitutional Convention, then the assurance that we as retirees have, which is in the Constitution, that we will be getting a pension could possibly be taken away. Uh, I'd like that confirmed by one of the political science people, but <laughs> I think that's how I understand it anyway. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is what everyone is, has said here tonight is ringing really true. It's even the part, especially maybe even a part of the part about not speaking to one another. And I think that, you know, it's really hard nowadays. I think social media has possibly enabled us not to speak to one another. And maybe we just need to hearken back to the days when there were forums in which we could do that. We could write letters to the editor. We could, you know, I don't know what, attend more of the public meetings. Uh, of our elected officials. We could get involved in whatever political party you wanted to get involved. But anyway, but anyway, <laughs> um, I guess my basic question was, is that true about the Constitution, Constitutional Convention? Or could we amend the way the state um, income tax is um, maintained without a complete constitutional convention and just treat that as an isolated item or would that be just cause other problems?
Uh, let, let's uh, give a quick response to that, Jeremy. You want to? Uh, my understanding is you you can always amend the Constitution. The, the problem you're going to run into in that case is just a, a misunderstanding a lot of times. Um, there are going to be people for and against it. And what makes it challenging is making sure that, that people fully understand what, what's involved in that. Um, and, and that's difficult to do. Um, like I said, it's easy to um, it's easy to kind of think about cutting spending or, or taxing more as long as you tax somebody else. <laughs> and um, I mean, but my understanding is we should be able to do something like that. My biggest fear, very quickly, about a constitutional convention is I'm not sure that we'd agree on anything. Um, you know, this this country was founded on compromise. That's not to say that our founders didn't have very strong, heartfelt beliefs. Madison and Hamilton had very strong beliefs. Um, yet they sat down and then when the founding fathers came together and, and, and created an incredible compromise. I think to go back to Jack, we, we don't compromise, we don't talk, we view each other as enemies, and it's very hard to govern when that's, that's the, the mentality that people have. Go ahead. My name is John Matthew. Um, I was born in DeKalb, raised in Sycamore, and now I own a home in Cortland. Um, so I feel like I understand a pretty good level of the values of the people in this community hold. Um, and I feel that the state does not run on the same value system that we do here. And to Jack's point, and we don't talk to one another. In DeKalb, we do. In DeKalb County, we have to. Our, we're split. It's always like seven to five, six to six on the county board. That's how it is. And it's a great system where people come together and they disagree, but they find a way to make things work. I don't see that happening at the state. It's, it's non-existent. It's we go to the ballot box and we vote for our guy, our team, to go beat up the other guy. It's not about finding compromise. It's saying we want this huge reform. The truth is we're not going to find a real reform within five, ten years. This is, these problems have been building up over decades, and to say we're going to have an easy solution within a couple of years is nonsense. What's going to – the changes we need to make have to be gradual or else people will be hurt, and that's just a fact. And I don't see that happening within the current political climate. And I think the political climate in which we see is going to only get worse, more polarized. Not, we're not coming together anytime soon. It's more polarized than ever. And it's going to continue to be that way because of the way that our elections are run. Um, with the two-party system, they don't have to bring forth any solutions. They just have to be better than the other guy or not the other guy. And I think that's a flawed system. That's why I'm running as a third-party candidate, because we need more representation, not less. And the current political system is set up in a way where it's harder for a third voice to enter that arena and, and discuss issues and actually come to solutions as opposed to just blaming the other side. Appreciate that. And uh, I can honestly say when I started covering the legislature back in the 90s, we had a split government, Republicans and Democrats. And when Bruce Rauner was elected, I thought, this might be a good thing. Maybe there's going to be compromise. And you can see how correct I was, right? I did want to give our panel any uh, chance for any last comment or any uh, statement maybe they didn't get to make earlier, anything you want to leave people with? Are we good? I just would say thank you all for listening and for discussing. It's been really, really interesting, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate our panel, and if you could give them a hand once again. Thank you.
Also, uh, thanks everybody for coming out tonight. We want to thank AARP for their support and of course WNIJ. Thanks again and have a safe trip home.